Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. The topic, dreadful judgments fall from the sky upon earth as a final warning for sinners to repent and be saved. The title of our message, Dread Sky at Morning, Sinner Take Warning. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these looks into the future, the certain future of earth that culminates with your second coming, your return to the earth to establish your kingdom. We're so excited about that. Well, Lord, even though we're looking to the future here in Revelation chapter 8, you can uh, bring it to our hearts right now, showing us Jesus, encouraging us to serve, blessing us, Lord, with a sense of your presence. As always, we want to be those that have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so minister to us through these words, I pray. We do it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Crowdfunding has become hugely popular. If you're not familiar with it, crowdfunding is the practice of funding a project by raising contributions from a large number of people, typically via the internet. For example, I've been following a campaign to fund a unique coffee mug that looks like a goat horn. It's the coolest thing ever. It's a coffee mug that looks like a goat horn. <laughs> well, when I bring it, you're going to envy me. But anyway, as of 2012, there were more than 450 crowdfunding platforms. The ones you'd likely be most familiar with are Kickstarter and GoFundMe. Churches more and more are turning to crowdfunding for their projects. My search for church on Kickstarter turned up uh, 574 current projects. Everything's from missions trips that churches would like to take to worship albums that they would like to record. Over the last five years, Kickstarter has raised more than $1 billion for 69,000 successful projects. I couldn't help but look up some of the weirdest campaigns that actually got funding. This could encourage you for your uh, projects. Combat Kitchenware. It's a frying pan attached to a sword hilt. It's actually kind of cool looking. The inventor took home $46,000 to make them. Meat Soap raised a paltry $1,900 to create a line of soaps that smell like bacon, beef, and barbecue. That'll do it for you guys, right? Meat on Monday. We'll have everybody come through the barbecue shower or something. Anyway, this is my absolute favorite. This is a real thing that got funded. It's called the Minerki. It's a combination of a menorah and a turkey in ceramic. It uh, celebrates the rare coincidence of Hanukkah and Thanksgiving. And so when Hanukkah and Thanksgiving occur at the same time, you bring out your menurki. <laughs> There's actually no crowdfunding in our text in Revelation chapter 8. I just wanted to talk about that stuff. But we do see, we do see, listen to this segue. We do see a certain crowd's longtime campaign come to fruition. We might call it crowd pleading. The prayers of all the saints is the ages long campaign. And it comes to fruition when we see their pleadings ascending before God with incense from the altar added to them. 
They are instrumental in bringing the tribulation judgments of God upon the inhabitants of earth. As we work through these verses, I'll organize thoughts around two points. Number one, you can add your prayers to those offered in heaven. And number two, God will answer your prayers upon those who inhabit earth. Let's take a look first of all about adding our prayers. Now in the future, sometime after the resurrection and rapture of the church, Jesus will take a seven-sealed scroll from his Father's hand, and he'll open one seal at a time. Each open seal takes us deeper into the seven years of the tribulation on the earth. Our verses describe the opening of the seventh seal around the very middle of those seven years. It's a momentous event because the scroll is now fully open, and it reveals the most awful pending judgments that are coming upon the earth for the next three and a half years. And so verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, I'm not going to tell the old joke that all ministers tell here. You know the one about the fact that there's no women in heaven because women can't keep silent for half an hour. <laughs> I am not going to tell that joke. I'm above that. I'm beyond that. Especially on Mother's Day. Who would tell that joke on Mother's Day? <laughs> Come on, losers. It's as... <laughs> This is the most ominous, dramatic pause in all of human history. Something extreme is about to happen, and it is announced by a terrifying, deafening silence. Seriously, silence can be very uncomfortable. Have you ever been in your car listening to the radio when suddenly the broadcast goes silent? After even a few seconds, you think something's wrong, and you start trying to figure it out. If I suddenly stopped talking for even 30 seconds, you'd wonder if I was having a stroke. I was going to try that this morning, but I didn't want anybody to rush up here and give me CPR. <laughs> Verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. John records this as if it was common knowledge that there are seven angels who stand before God. It was, to a certain extent, to the Jews. You may have heard of the book of Enoch. It's an ancient Jewish book. It's ascribed to Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah, who was taken to heaven by God in a rapture prior to the global flood. The book of Enoch is quoted in the New Testament by Jude. It is an interesting piece of literature not considered by Christians part of the inspired Bible. Enoch, however, mentions seven presence angels, also called archangels, and he names them. They are Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel, Raguel, Remiel, and Serakel. I'm not saying these are their actual names, but Jews reading the Revelation would understand what John was talking about, and these are the names that they were familiar with. Notable for us is that they each are given a trumpet, seven trumpets in all. The seventh seal... When Jesus opens the seventh seal, it is the blowing of seven trumpets, one right after the other, taking us deeper into the second half of the tribulation. And as I've told you before, the seventh trumpet sounds and seven bowls of wrath are poured out upon the earth. And so uh, people say you can't really tell what's going on in the revelation. John is all over the place. And that's not true. If you follow the seven seals, they're chronological. Then you follow 
follow the seven trumpets, they're chronological. You follow the seven bowls, they're chronological. There are a lot of chapters that fill in the detail, but John is very definitely giving us a timeline for the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Uh, it says here in verse 3, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Something must occur before the first trumpet is blown. The prayers of all the saints are brought before God's throne, incense added, and then placed upon this golden altar. This is the second altar we've encountered in heaven in the Revelation. The first was the fifth seal as martyred souls beneath an altar cried out to God for vengeance. The Jewish temple that was on the earth, the tabernacle first and then the temple, it was a replica of things that exist in heaven. The first altar you came upon in the Jewish tabernacle and temple was the altar of sacrifice upon which a fire was constantly kept kindled night and day. There the body of the sacrificed animal would be burnt. After the sacrifice was consumed, fire from the altar of sacrifice would be put in a censer and brought into the main room of the temple to this second altar, the golden altar of incense. Just beyond this room was the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt behind a thick veil. You would understand by these furnishings that the way into the presence of God was by the sacrifice of an innocent substitute. Once the sacrifice atoned for your sin, you could then approach God and offer your prayers before him on the altar. Without that sacrifice, you could not approach God and you would only face his judgment upon your sin. No animals are actually sacrificed on the altar in heaven. Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, he was the sacrifice for the sins of the world in the book of Hebrews, you read regarding Jesus, it says in chapter 10, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, what all that is saying is that once fellowship was broken between Adam and Eve and God, he he said, here's how it has to be restored. Someone must die because the wages of sin is death. While you're waiting for me to send the Savior that was promised in the Garden of Eden, he says, I'm going to allow animals to substitute for him. And if you offer animals in the prescribed way, you can have temporary access to me and I will hear your prayers. But then Jesus says, God was never pleased with that. He was never excited about animal sacrifice. It meant nothing to him except that it anticipated that Jesus would come, that God would come in human flesh, have a body prepared to be sacrificed on the cross at Calvary to die for the sins of the world. Jesus is called the Lamb of God about 30 times in the Revelation. It is to constantly remind the Jewish readers and us that all the animals sacrificed through all the centuries by the patriarchs and priests on any altar was typical of that once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. It all looked forward to his coming. And that's why we read in Hebrews 9, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You'll remember when Jesus died on the cross, the very moment he died, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, signifying to everyone that that was the final sacrifice. And now the way into the presence of God is open to 
all. So the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Potentially, the entire human race could be saved, but it, you must believe on Jesus Christ and call upon his name in order to be saved. If you're a believer, you can now approach God's throne anytime, anywhere, with total freedom and confidence that you will receive grace and mercy from your Father. Now, when this seventh seal is opened, the prayers of all the saints play a crucial role. They activate the blowing of the seven trumpets that bring the final series of judgments upon the earth. <clears throat> it says in verse 5, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. These phenomena that Jesus mentions are like a curtain going up on the coming trumpet judgments. They happen globally. They portend something God is about to do on the entire planet that has never been done before. Sometimes people say we're in the tribulation now. Jesus said the tribulation is something that's coming upon the earth that has never, ever been like it before, nor ever will again. Uh, and, and that's what we're talking about here. As far as knowing what's coming, I, I got on a sidetrack this week and realized that wild animals are able to sense disturbances weeks before, uh, for example, earthquakes strike. Did you ever feel that way, that your dog was telling you that an earthquake was going to happen? I felt that before. And then, but it's usually within certain proximity. But now a new study by Cambridge University was published in the journal Physics and Chemistry of the Earth. Researchers studied several creatures in Peru's National Park and they observed a change in their behavior beginning 23 days before a 7.0 magnitude earthquake struck Contamena in 2011. And so they're trying to figure out if we can be warned ahead of time by animals. Japanese fishermen and sailors of old took cats to predict the weather, even taking them on ships so that they'd be first to know if a storm was coming their way. Now, I can't figure out my cat at all. So I don't know what the Japanese know. Maybe they hold some sushi in front of it and say, this could be you. Uh, I don't know. But uh, so that's a famous thing. So uh, there are different ways people have had of kind of predicting these terrible disasters. A storm is coming upon the earth, and it's going to be preceded by noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So if you're on the earth mid-tribulation, seeing a lot of other things happening, when these things happen, then you you know, man, the curtain is going up on the seventh seal. It's going to be on like Donkey Kong from this point on. <laughs> and it is. Uh, and so uh, the thing is, it says noises. Noises is interesting to me because I, a few years ago, there were some stories around the world of the earth just making noises. People in different areas just heard noises and they couldn't figure out where it was coming from and scientists determined it was just from the ground and they still don't know what it was. How long can I do that before you get bummed? But anyway... While we believe that all of our prayers rise as incense before God's throne, something very specific obviously is happening in these verses. Given the fact that what follows is the final series of judgments that lead to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth in his second coming to establish his kingdom on earth, I suggest to you that the prayers being answered here specifically are the prayers, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us how to pray. We call it the Lord's 
prayer. It's more properly the disciples' prayer because it's not a prayer Jesus prayed. It's, it's, a, it's a prayer he gave us. And it's not really a prayer. It's all right to pray verbatim, word for word, but it's really a framework for how to pray. Here it is. You know it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil uh, or the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When Jesus taught this prayer, he told us to approach God as our Father reverently and right out of the gate before anything else. He says, ask for his kingdom to come. Then you can seek God for daily spiritual and physical needs as we await the coming kingdom. And then the prayer ends with another reference to to the kingdom. It prompted one scholar to say, the Lord's Prayer is kingdom-saturated and kingdom-oriented. It is all about desiring Jesus to return to earth and establish his kingdom. Even before Jesus taught us to pray, believers were already looking forward to the coming kingdom on earth. It was promised to Abraham. It was promised to David. It was the constant expectation of first century Jews. It prompted the disciples to several times ask Jesus, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom when you establish it? And right up until his ascension into heaven, they were still asking him, are you now going to establish the kingdom? And so the Jews were all about the kingdom. We are to be all about the kingdom. And by kingdom, I mean the coming of the king to establish his kingdom on earth. The second coming of Jesus Christ. It ought to permeate our praying. It ought to be our passion. Because it is ultimately the answer to all of our prayers. If While we're praying for our daily needs, as spiritual as well as physical, we need to do it in the framework of being a uh, people that is just passing through, citizens of heaven who are looking for the return of Jesus. If we're longing for the kingdom to come, for the return of the king, as it were, it's going to affect not just our praying, it'll affect our living, all aspects of our lives. For us, Jesus is coming imminently to resurrect and rapture us, and obviously that blessed hope, when we're really holding on to it, is motivational. You don't need much more motivation as a Christian than to think, I could see Jesus any second now. Is this what I want to be thinking? Is this what I want to be doing? Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not expecting a negative answer. I mean, you know, a positive answer. Yes, this is exactly what I want to be doing. I want to be serving him. Thus, we add our prayers to this future scene in heaven. So if you and I are also praying, thy kingdom come, if that's a desire of our hearts and our lives, those prayers will be there when the angel brings these prayers before the throne. Now, maybe our prayers will have headings like tweets on Twitter. You ever see, or like the video we saw where you could see who was sending the text message and stuff. And I, I want to be able to see a bunch of my prayers from my vantage point, pretty high up in the nosebleed seats, I'm sure. But, um, you know, uh, this, none of this is probably true. I'm just trying to, you know, do some filler here. But anyway, <laughs> the idea is you're, you're going to want, whenever you're in heaven, I mean, people have a tendency to say, oh, when I get to heaven, I don't care how many crowns I have because, you know, I'm in heaven and it's all about Jesus. We're just going to throw at his feet anyway. Hey, you're going to want to you want to have crowns. You're going to want to have rewards. Uh, you're not going to be want to be the one guy with just a robe with nothing on it. You know, you're going to you're going to want some stuff going on, and you're going to want to have your prayers tip the balances 
of thy kingdom come. I mean, these are things that we are actually going to participate. You are a participant in this now and later by how you pray. Verses 6 through 13, God will answer your prayers upon those who inhabit the earth. The answer to those prayers, as I've said, is the second coming of Jesus. Thy kingdom comes when he returns bodily to the earth. His coming must be preceded by the blowing of the seven trumpets. Verse 6, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. I assume they've been ready for a long time, at least since John wrote this. Uh... Still, it says here that they prepared themselves. Now, the church bought recently a shofar, a ram's horn trumpet, and it is really difficult to play. It's not easy at all. We haven't perfected it, or I'd be playing it every Sunday, but um, it's cool. We're going to debut it. Maybe next week we'll debut it at our 30th. You never know what's going to happen here at Calvary Hanford. But, um, so the angel, I mean, I think it'd be pretty easy for an angel to blow a shofar. Uh, so what are they doing preparing? I don't know how you prepare for this but it reminds me as a Christian that I need to be prepared and I need to be preparing spontaneity is great sometimes people come up and they say you use notes I go yeah and they say well you know where's the spontaneity where's the Holy Spirit in that well, the Holy Spirit is in my reading and in my studying, in my compilation of the notes, and then in me going off topic like I am right now. That's all, that's all the spontaneity that I need. Uh, and if I've heard spontaneous sermons before. You have to be pretty gifted to do a spontaneous sermon. And if you're pretty gifted, you don't do spontaneous sermons usually. And occasionally you will. And, and I've heard them before. They're repetitious. All people do is say the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, and, and you sit there and you think, well, this is a spontaneous sermon. I could have stayed home. I should have watched Calvary Hanford online. Uh, so, you know, that kind of a thing. Well, that wasn't mean. Come on. Wait until I'm actually mean. Furthermore, we prepare by seeking God for fresh filling of God the Holy Spirit. When you got saved, you were, the Bible says, baptized into the body of Christ. Not water baptized, but spirit baptized as the Holy Spirit put you in the body of Christ and came and lived inside of you. You can't be a Christian unless you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. After that, the Bible describes Christians, born-again Christians, as receiving fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Baptism was the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Jesus even said in the Gospel of Luke, talking to believers, he says, when you talk to your Father in heaven, you're a believer, ask and seek and knock. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. And what was he talking about? He says, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit who the Father wants to give. And so no matter how long you've been a Christian, you and I are to constantly be saying or singing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. And God will refresh and replenish and renew us. When we pray at the end of our services, uh, you're welcome to come forward and the guys will pray with you. 
laying hands on you and you can just ask the Lord to fill you afresh and new because the Christian life is not by might it's never by power it's only by the Spirit of God and God says you're going to need more of the Spirit all the time so don't be hesitant to ask for him now the trumpets the first four trumpets affect the natural creation verse 7 the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up I hate to take time to do this, but it's become popular somewhat to move away from the understanding that these kinds of things in Revelation are literal to saying they are typical and allegorical. <coughs> Excuse me. For example, lately I keep encountering the term Jewish apocalyptic literature when people are criticizing the literal approach to Revelation. The argument is that there is a genre of literature that has its own unique rules of non literal interpretation and that the revelation was written by John in that form. It's kind of like Japanese haiku. You have to follow certain rules and they say, oh, there are certain rules for Jewish apocalyptic literature. Revelation is that type of literature and one of the rules is that it's understood it's not to be taken literally. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> John Walvoord wrote, a sharp distinction should be observed between apocalyptic works outside the Bible and apocalyptic works which are scripture because that writing was guided by the inspiration of who? The Holy Spirit. He makes his own rules. And he tells us what they are in this book. For example, I've mentioned it before. It's a good example. When we get to chapter 20, the second coming of Jesus Christ, followed by his kingdom on the earth, seven times in, I think, 10 or 11 verses, the Holy Spirit clearly says this kingdom on earth will last 1,000 years. 1,000 years, over and over and over again, to which these people say, that means nothing. It means an indefinite period of time. It could mean anything. And the Holy Spirit is like, no, seven times I told you what it meant. And so we, we are futurists who take these things literally. The glaring problem with adopting an allegorical approach is this. You can interpret things any way you like. There's no consistency. Uh, you can say anything about anything. And since there's no code or anything to follow... You don't know what you're talking about. And that's exactly what you find in those commentaries. Commentator J.A. Seiss wrote this. He says, the truth is, if earth, trees, and grass do not mean earth, trees, and grass, no one can tell what they do mean. Letting go the literal signification of the record, we launch out upon an endless sea of sheer conjecture. And so the way we read, and, and many other, most other Christians, I would say, read Revelation uh, is accurate. It is is a literal futurist book. Uh, unless it's telling us that it's symbolic or allegorical, and then we look for the interpretation of the symbols within the book itself or elsewhere in the Bible. And I've showed you as we've gone through some chapters that where Jesus will say, or the writer will say this, and then he'll define what it is. He says Jesus is in the midst of the seven candlesticks. But what does that mean? Well, hang on, read a couple verses more, and he says the candlesticks are the churches. And so the book isn't that hard. We don't know everything there is to know about it. We're not the experts but it's not that hard. We don't want to make it more complicated than it is. 
a mighty hailstorm, a real hailstorm accompanied by some sort of fire is going to rain down from heaven. Mingled with blood is just chilling. Could be the carnage from the deaths of men on the earth as they're caught in the storm. It may be blood accompanying the storm. Since the martyrs in chapter 6 specifically asked the Lord to avenge their blood, could be representative of their blood. There will also be massive fires on the earth as a result of this judgment. In chapter 11, you'll learn that there's been a three and a half year drought on the earth, fueling that fire in heaven. It says a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. I endured many devastating fires when we lived in Southern California uh, during their fire season. Um, many times we lived in the foothills and there would be uh, fire apparatus in our driveway getting ready to try and divert the fire from our house. Uh, the Panorama Fire took over 400 homes in just a, an afternoon as it swept through the Waterman Canyon down into North San Bernardino. Um, many of you have been involved in situations like that. It's terrifying. Imagine that to include one-third of the globe, and it's mind-boggling. Verse 8, then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. It isn't a mountain thrown down, it is something like a great mountain, a giant solid mass which hits the earth, surrounded by combustible gases which ignite as it enters the earth's atmosphere. It hits in one of the oceans, and a third of the sea becomes blood. That could mean that the ocean affected turns to blood as the Nile River did during the Ten Plagues in Egypt, or it could again be the effect of creatures dying in the sea. By the way, there are a few similarities to the trumpet judgments and the ten plagues from Egypt in the book of Exodus. It prompted one scholar to write, the trumpet and bowl judgments intentionally parallel the, tel the ten plagues of Egypt. The ten plagues are prototypes of the trumpets and bowls, providing a framework to understand them. The ten plagues occurred just before Israel's exodus from Egypt, prophetically foreshadowing the end time judgment before the final exodus of God's people from the kingdom of darkness. And so the exodus in the Old Testament, real, absolutely historic, bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and ultimately into the promised land. But it was also a type of what is going to happen on a global scale in the future during the Great Tribulation as saints emerge from the Great Tribulation uh, delivered from that terrible time into the kingdom of God. And by the way, we take the ten plagues to be literal, do we not? No one reads about the ten plagues and thinks that they were figurative or allegorical. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any of the great movies with Moses that you have. You can't have an allegorical movie where he comes into Pharaoh and says, hey, it's going to be like uh, flies. Let's take flies. No, there were flies. There were frogs. The water did turn to blood. Why would we see the type as real and then the fulfillment in the Old Testament as an allegory? It doesn't make any sense to adopt a figurative, allegorical approach to the book of the Revelation. The sea might be a specific reference to the Mediterranean Sea, not a reference to all oceans. For a person in the world John lived in, the Mediterranean Sea was the sea, and they really had little knowledge of other oceans for the most part. Even if it hits in the Med, the effects are global. They might be worse at that point of impact, but everyone on the planet will be affected. It says here a third of the ships in the world's oceans are destroyed by resultant rogue waves, if nothing else. And notice the precision of the measurements. It's one 
one-third, no more, no less. It shows that these are carefully calculated judgments that are sent by God, not simply nature gone bad or human beings ruining the environment out of greed. The third trumpet brings poison upon the world's fresh waters, verses eight, uh, 10 and 11. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Another object strikes the earth called a star. It seems mostly fluid, burning like a lamp. As it strikes the atmosphere, it scatters all over the planet, and it affects the earth's fresh water rivers and the springs from which they flow. It's named Wormwood, perhaps the way we name storms and hurricanes today. Wormwood is a word that refers to something being poisonous to you. Now the fourth trumpet brings a plague on the heavens and darkness on the earth. Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. I don't know exactly what this means, but it's more than an eclipse. The light from these heavenly bodies is actually reduced by a factor of one-third. It will result in severe drops in the world's temperatures, vast meteorological upset, and changes in climate. Commentators sometimes attribute these judgments to extreme natural disasters. Sort of like people blame so-called global warming for all manner of problems today. Other commentators see a nuclear event in these descriptions. These are supernatural judgments in nature. They are not natural events. They are God interfering with the natural order, not man. Verse 13 removes all doubt. And I looked and I heard an angel fly through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. God is sending storm warnings out to the inhabitants of the earth. First, we saw noises, thunderings, lightnings, earthquakes, warning of the trumpets coming. Now, in each trumpet, there is a calculated amount of judgment as God is warning of things to to come. The word translated angel is odd. It's more likely eagle. That's a weird fact, but it's true. Here's a suggestion by Dr. Henry Morris. He says he is both angel and eagle. There are four mighty angels, the living creatures of Revelation 4. The fourth of these is said to have an appearance like a flying eagle. So whether it's a giant eagle uh, or whether it's an, an eagle-like angel, the idea is that everyone on planet Earth will be warned that this is the judgment of God upon sin coming more and more rapidly with greater and greater urgency so that they will repent and be saved and not perish eternally. God is not a passive bystander who allows mankind to ruin himself by environmental ignorance or unrestrained weapons technology. This isn't describing nature taking its course or even human nature taking its course. It isn't the age of Ultron. It isn't any of those things. A lot of times you watch the Discovery Channel, History Channel, National Geographic. They'll quote the Bible, talk about the apocalypse, and, and they'll tell you what's coming. But the, they give you the impression that if we, uh, you know, hand over our nukes, and if we quit warming up the planet with, you know, fluorocarbon, you know, whatever, however you're supposed to do that, I don't even know, uh, then everything will be all right. We will save ourselves because these are natural things that we have brought upon ourselves. God says, no, listen to the angel 
that looks like an eagle. He's going to tell you what's going on. This is me warning you of the final judgment. Because when, when Jesus touches down, uh, when he comes into his second coming, those that are alive, it, they're done in terms of having made a decision. They've either accepted Christ or they've rejected him. And we've, a lot of people are going to die in this portion of the tribulation. And, and the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, yes, these judgments are piling on, and they're awful and terrible and terrifying, but they are geared towards saving people. Woe is a word that indicate, uh, indicates that God is at work judging sin. We understand the phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, to be a technical phrase describing non-believers on the earth who have deliberately rejected salvation and who prefer this world over heaven for their home. They will be without excuse. One of the crazy things about the tribulation is that all the way through it, there are those who continue to reject God's free grace offer of salvation in favor of what this world has to offer, even as the world is being destroyed. If people won't accept Jesus as their substitute at the altar of sacrifice, then the fire from that altar must fall upon them. If they won't apply his blood to their sins, the blood of the martyrs they have slain will stain them. Comment, uh, commenting on these judgments, Pastor David Guzik writes, God attacks all the ordinary means of substance, such as food and water. He attacks the ordinary means of comfort and knowledge, such as light and the regular rhythm of days. Man has come to see these aspects of the created order as impersonal, perpetual forces. During the Great Tribulation, God proclaims his lordship through their agonizing disruption. And remember, God only strikes one-third. It's been said he spares more than he strikes. Judgment is inevitable because the wages of sin is death. But in his divine wrath, God remembers mercy. Men will still have the opportunity to repent. The tribulation, even as it worsens leading up to the second coming of Jesus, is always the grace of God's wrath reaching out to the lost. Our God saves any and all who call upon his name, trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what he was about in the Garden of Eden. It's what he was about in the Old Testament. It's what he's about in the New Testament era of grace. It's what he'll be about in the tribulation. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He just goes about trying to save people in different ways uh, because of the hardness of their hearts. And men's hearts will be hardened during the tribulation, even when they hear angels uh, and see witnesses who are indestructible and things like that. Now, don't underestimate the hardness of the human heart. It is the hardest substance known to man, uh, far harder than anything that we know. And that's why we pray for people that God would soften their hearts, would open their blind eyes, that there would be an effect of his heart. And the Bible works on the heart. God searches the heart. He shows the heart. And so keep praying for those that are lost. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ with the blessed hope of the rapture at his coming for the church? Or are you an inhabitant of the earth, one who would be left behind to see and experience these kinds of terrible judgments? Something for us to ponder as believers as we close. This scene shows us that our prayers for the kingdom are eventually answered by the, blowing, uh, by the opening of the seventh seal and God's judgments raining down upon non-believers. When we say, thy kingdom come, we have to understand that ultimately it, it means 
it's going to come with the opening of the seventh seal and the raining down of judgment upon the earth. And because we are people who have compassion, and, and you know, it should, we shouldn't shrink away and say, oh, may that never happen. No, what we should do is think, then I need to be about the business of the gospel, whatever I'm called to be doing to further the gospel, so that as few people as possible are left after the rapture of the church. These things are going to happen. They're going to be terrible. People are going to die, and they're going to suffer in terrible ways. But I should save as many as are possible before then. And again, let's be about the Lord's work, is all this says. Because this is going to happen. Nothing can change this future. Jesus said in the beginning of Revelation, once it happens, it will happen in sequence. Nothing can change it. Um, but people can repent then. They can repent now. We need to be praying for them and trying to reach them. Amen. Amen. 